Ah, and let there be light. And there was light. Ah, how you guys doing this evening? I almost said this morning. How you guys doing this evening? It is definitely an evening. Uh, you guys doing good? Awesome, awesome. Well, hey, we're going to dive right into it tonight um, because we don't have a lot to cover, but we have a lot to cover. Um, we're in our series uh, called Justified, going through the Book of Romans. This is week number two. Uh, last week we got the introductory, uh, and the introductory, that's a new word, the introduction um, or the introductory sermon uh, to the book of Romans. We looked at Paul, we looked at the city of Rome, we looked at the letter, we looked at why it was written, how it was written, uh, we looked at the people it was written to, and then we broke down uh, some things about faith, and last week's sermon was titled, Signs Sealed Delivered, and we looked at five points concerning faith, and how faith really is, is, is one of the main themes of this uh, theological discourse called the Letter to the Romans, which Paul wrote, uh, a very good theological uh, breakdown of Christianity for us to a church that he didn't know their problems, he didn't know their people, so he just said, hey, here's Jesus, here's the gospel, take it and run with it. We looked at faith, and we looked at justification, and now we're going to continue on in that sermon tonight. The title of tonight's sermon um, is going to be Divine Juxtaposition, and we're going to talk about this, uh, this juxtaposition that's taking place in the heavenlies. Uh, we're going to be going through Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 32. If you remember last week, we went all the way up through verse 17, but we're going to start off and springboard uh, with uh, a verse or two tonight. Uh, from verse uh, 16 and 17. This is what it says. We're going to pick up. We're going to dive right in. I'm going to read all the way through. This is what it says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it is the righteousness of God, uh, and it is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And we talked about those verses just uh, briefly last week. And we're really going to dive in and look at the good news and the gospel that's presented there. But what we're going to do now is we're going to just read 18 through 32. Uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, things talked about. And we're going to hopefully break it down in a way that we can all understand uh, tonight. But this is what it says, picking up in verse 18 of chapter 1. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they, being man, is without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify God, as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creepy things. Therefore God gave them over to their uncleanliness, and the lusts of their hearts, to the dishonors of their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie." And worship this, uh, worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lusts for one another. Men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, 
God gave them over to a debased mind to those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, uh, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve those who practice them. This is uh, a big, heavy portion of Scripture. Let's pray, then let's dive in. Dear God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word is perfect. We thank you that your word says what it means and means what it says. God, we thank you that your word uh, is is, uh, transcendent of time. It is always culturally relevant, and it speaks to us where we are at today. Uh, God, we thank you for your free gift of grace, uh, and we thank you for the gospel, and we pray that tonight, uh, as we look at this portion of scripture, that the gospel would ring true, that the gospel would ring loudest, uh, God, and that the, the, the love that you showed us through Jesus Christ uh, would be the thing that wins out. And so, God, we just pray uh, that these would be your words, uh, not mine, that, God, you would speak through me anything that I would say that would be of myself. God, may it fall on deaf ears, uh, but, God, that your perfect word uh, would come through. So God, we thank you and we praise you in your son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. 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 So we titled the message tonight, Divine Juxtaposition. How many of you guys know what a juxtaposition is? That's a fun word. I like saying it. Anyone know what a juxtaposition is? Yeah, okay. Uh, no one raised their hand, so so I'm going to give you the definition. A juxtaposition... Uh, yeah, I, know what it is. I just want to hear what you are going to say. Uh, I was going to say it's a comparison of two things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, so juxtaposition, we're just comparing one thing up against the other. Uh, and what we're going to be comparing tonight uh, is God's wrath and man's depravity versus God's salvation and man's redemption. So we have two different things, very much related, but we're going to look at what the kind of bummer side of things are. That's God's wrath and man's depravity, but then we're going to look at kind of the happier side of things, which is God's salvation and man, man's redemption. So, five points tonight. We're going to start it off right now. First point is this, God's wrath. And if you're taking notes, uh, I, I've got it up here, God's wrath, and we're going to answer two questions. What is it and why is it? What is God's wrath and why is there such a thing uh, as the wrath of God? And in order to do this, uh, I think it's important for us to break down, uh, first and foremost, what is God's wrath? Now, with the portion of Scripture that we've read, uh, you may have noticed there were a few por- points where it said, and because of this or for this reason, God gave them over. The The punishment and the wrath <clears throat> of God um, is, is kind of twofold. The first fold would be, well, there's a ultimate end, destruction, hell, which was not created for man. Let us all know God did not create hell so that he could throw sinners there. God created hell so that he could throw Satan and the fallen angels there. So then the question is asked, well, how come a good God sends good people to hell? Well, one, there's two flaws to that question. The Bible says there's not one good person. No, not even one, saving Jesus. Uh, So there's no good people. So then if you were to rephrase that, God sends bad people to hell. But that's not entirely true. God actually doesn't send anyone to hell. People choose to go to hell. And you're like, what? I don't get it. We're talking about God's wrath. 
God's wrath is, in, is just in two ways. Uh, God doesn't send people innately to hell. People choose to go to hell, but hell and destruction is the wrath of God, and it is the wages of our sin. And we're going to talk about that just a little bit later on tonight. But because there is sin, because man has fallen and sin and death have entered the world, there has to be a payment and a justice for that sin and for that uh, wickedness, and that justice and that payment is God's wrath. Now, what Romans breaks down for us in Romans chapter 1 here is it breaks down that God's wrath is not some, oh, you messed up, lightning bolt. Oh, you don't think I'm God? I'm going to make a flood destroy your village. No, no. God's wrath is when someone says, you know what, I think I'm better than God, or God, that was a great idea, but I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to create my own gods. God's wrath isn't so much as destruction right away, but he says, okay, you think you can do it? You think you can do it? You think you can do better? All right, go do better. Which is which is kind of crazy because all those roads are going to lead to destruction, but the wrath of God is saying, okay, you want to do it? I'm going to give you over to your mind. I'm going to give you over, and it says, to vile passions, to their lust. Uh, he gives them a debased mind. Uh, God allows man to do his own thing. Critics of Christianity and cr critics of God uh, have said, well, you're Christians, you're just a bunch of puppets or robots being controlled by God. Here's the reality. God doesn't control us. God allows us to make our own decisions. He's given us free will. We're going to talk about that free will a little bit later on tonight when we talk about salvation and, and, and those sorts of things. But he also gives us the free will just to mess up and to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to do it different. And he says here in Romans, under, uh, Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, hey, there are those who have said... We can do it better than God. Let's try it ourselves. This is what he says, uh, lest you think I'm making this up. He says this in verse 24. <clears throat> he says, therefore, God gave them up to their uncleanness uh, and the lusts of their hearts, and they dishonored their bodies among themselves. They said, hey, God, uh, you've got a plan. We don't like your plan. Let's do it differently. And God said, okay, okay, do it. And there is now a justice that is going to follow. Now the question could be asked, okay, if God knew that that was going to happen, why would God allow them to just go with their evil thoughts? Why wouldn't God say, nope, you're sticking with my thoughts? Well, then God would become unjust, then God would become unloving, and God wouldn't give us will, and he would make us into mindless robots. And that's not who God is. God has created us each uniquely in his image for a specific purpose, and we find that purpose out as we live our lives. But what is the wrath of God? God gave a man over to their sinful uh, ways, and as a result of being given over to their sinful ways, man now experiences the wrath of God in the wages of sin being death. As Paul's going to tell us in just two short chapters in the book of Romans, he says the wages of sin are death. And so there is death, and we're going to talk about that uh, more in our third point. But to answer the second question, so what is the wrath of God? Well, there's the wages of sin and there's the ways of sin. Both of those are the wrath of God. Why is there the wrath of God? Well, we've kind of already answered it, but the why there's the wrath of God is because man has rejected God. And because man has rejected God, there has to be some sort of repercussion. If God is a just God, which the Bible says he is, and we know him to be, then there is a repercussion. So there has to be this wrath. 
we're told uh, when Clement, he was one of Paul and Peter's disciples, he wrote a letter to the church in Corinth from the church in Rome, and he actually breaks down this even further when he talks about those who have hated the ways of God, have gone against God, and now are going to experience the wrath of God. He goes on to break down even more some of these things that how man has not only said, I can do it better, but they say, yeah, God, I actually hate your way. I'm going to do my way. You see, when we try and do something contrary to what the Lord says, we're actually saying, God, I really hate your plan. I'm going to try my plan. You know how I just said a few moments ago that we are all created uniquely and in the image of God? We're all created in, in the image of God. And when we allow that to not point honor back to God, but we begin to make ourselves God, we begin to say, hey, you know what? I'm better. I can do it on my own. We begin making ourselves a God, which starts breaking multiple of the Ten Commandments. And we start putting God in this box and saying, no, 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 I'm this, 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 and this necessitates the wrath of God. Uh, Romans chapter 120 says this. This is answering the question, uh, why is there the wrath of God? It says this in uh, chapter 1, verse 20. It says, for since the beginning of creation, since the beginning, the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and his God's Godhead, so that man is without excuse. If we look just one verse before, it says, because they have known God is manifest in them, for he has shown himself to them. Here's the reality. Every person on this planet knows that there is God, knows that there is a God. We're told elsewhere in Scripture that he has written his plans on the tablet of our heart. Mankind, God has revealed himself to all mankind through his creation, through his word, so that everyone is without excuse. And people still, as we see here in Romans chapter 1, still reject God even though he has revealed himself to them. And this necessitates the wrath of God. He has made it clear to all is what Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says. And we all know there's a God, but some have decided that our way is better. Now the question would be asked, well, what about the people who live in Papua New Guinea or, or in backwoods of Thailand who've never met a Christian before, never had a Bible? How do they know who Jesus is? How do they know? It's a good question. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So what happens to the person who dies before they ever hear of Jesus? Very good question. But what does Romans chapter 1, verse 20 say? It says, he has made himself known to all people so that everyone is without excuse. What does that mean? How do we wrap our minds around that? Well, here's a little cliffhanger for you guys. Uh, Paul actually breaks that down to the church in Rome. In chapter 2, in the latter half of chapter 2, so Dan's going to speak on the first half of chapter 2 next week, and then we're going to pick up the latter part of chapter 2 in two weeks, and we're going to really cover this question, what about the people who never heard the name of Jesus, what happens to them when they die? We're going to cover that, so the Bible does have answers, but I'm not going to steal from that sermon for tonight's sermon, uh, but just know that man is without excuse, and God's wrath is just and there is a reason for God's wrath. And it is because man has rejected God. Second point, when we're looking at the one side of this juxtaposition, we have God's wrath 
And God's wrath is directly proportionate to man's depravity. And that's going to be the, what our second point is. Man's depravity. What is man's depravity? And why is man depraved? Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to John chapter 3. Everyone's like, oh, I know what verse he's going to say. He's going to say John 3.16. We're actually going to talk about John 3.16, but not right now. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 36. How many of you have that one memorized? Oh, Sam does. That's awesome. This is what it says in John chapter 3, verse 36. It says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. The depravity of man. That's what it says one more time. He who believes in the Son of God has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. The depravity of man is directly connected to the wrath of God. When we reject Jesus, the wrath of God abides in us. And man, as a result of being sinful because of the fall, Adam and Eve, and all of that, we are all born into sin. So man innately is a sinner. What is man's depravity? Well, verse 22 through 32 really define what our depravity is. Let's look at some of the depraved things of mankind. Professing to be wise, man has become a fool. They have changed the incorruptible God into an image made by a corruptible man. Birds, four-footed animals, and creepy things. So not only is, is some of the depravity of man thinking we're smarter than we really are and acting like fools, we create idols. Uh, let's see what else it says. It says, oh, we exchanged the truth of God for a lie. False teachings, false doctrines, false religions. And we worshipped and served the creatures rather than the creator. Putting faith in something other than God, but maybe putting our faith in a cow or a tree or whatever it may be. But rejecting and replacing God. Here's some other things that, that, that make us to pray. Women uh, leaving the natural. Uh, men leaving the natural. Uh, homosexuality. That, that is a uh, direct thing of, of the depravity of man. It, it is a result of our sin nature. What are some other things? It says uh, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, so they just said, nah, no, no more God. They're filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, which is all sexual sin, mm-hmm. wickedness, covetousness. Anyone ever covet something before? Yeah, that's, it's part of our human nature. It's part of our depraved nature. Um, let's see what else. Maliciousness. Anyone ever have malice towards someone? Yeah, no, that's not a good thing. Full of envy, murder, strife. Well, you're like, oh, well, maybe I'm not totally depraved. I've never murdered before. What does Jesus say? He says, if you have hate towards a brother, you've committed murder in your heart. Okay, so we're all sinners there. Strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers. Backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. Inventors of evil things. There's lots of evil things that have been that. I was going to come up with a really funny joke of some evil thing. Um, but then I was like, ah, I'll cut McDonald's some slack. Oh, awesome, awesome, awesome. Uh, no, that's not where it's going. Um, it goes on to say they're disobedient to their parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Uh, but not only these people who practice these things, but people who associate with these people. Man is depraved. From our very core, from the very onset of our life, 
we are in a state of sin. You're like, what a baby, they're so cute and innocent. Yes, but they're born into sin. From the earliest ages, a baby can begin to make decisions. They make bad decisions. And no, I'm not saying they fall down and hurt themselves as a bad decision. No, when a little kid, their parent says, don't do that, what does the kid go do? They do that. By our own nature, we are just disobedient people. We do not like authority. We do not like accountability. We are people who are depraved. Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians, another letter that Paul wrote. This is what he has to say about the condition of mankind from the onset. This is what he says. He says this in verse 1 of chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians. He says, And you he has made alive who were once dead in your trespasses and sins. So not only are we depraved and we are operating as depraved humanity, we're actually dead humanity. We could do a sermon series on this portion of Scripture right here. We could title it the Walking Dead Sermon Series. We could talk about how sinful people are literally spiritual zombies. Walking dead, not even knowing it. This is what it says in verse 2. It says, In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. That's all sorts of things that were covered there in Romans chapter 1. Fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of our mind. And were by nature, so we were born into this, children of wrath. The depravity of man is this. Because of sin, we are completely cut off from God. Our sin completely separates us from God. So we have God here, we have man here. Because of our depravity, God's wrath is necessary. And because of our depravity, there is a great chasm between God and man that cannot be crossed because man is so evil... Every person, from the nicest of nice to the meanest of mean, we are all evil in God's sight. Everyone sitting here is like, but wait, I put my faith in Jesus. Yeah, we're going to get to that. That's the beautiful part of this. Before Christ, man is so evil, there's no connection with God. So, what is the depravity of man? It's total separation from God because of our sin. Why is man deprived? Because of his actions. Because when Adam said, oh, okay, Eve, you think this is a good idea to eat the fruit? You ate it? All right, I'm going to eat it too. And everyone, I hear people say, well, Adam gets a bad rap. Eve was the one who ate it first. How come Eve? Well, Eve was deceived. Adam willfully went into it. He knew the deception, yet he ate it anyways. And because of their sin in the garden, now every single human being is born from a sinful bloodline. And by nature are children of wrath. By nature are rejectors of God. And so God's wrath, what is it? Why is it? Man's depravity, what is it? Why is it? God's wrath is directly connected to man's depravity. And because of man's depravity, we experience God's wrath. Does that make sense? That's the first two things. Now the third point is a nice, short, and simple point. 
But God's wrath plus man's depravity equals a price that needs to be paid. It's not just good enough to say, all right, well, God's wrath covers man's depravity because man's depraved. God's going to destroy him. He could have, but there's a better plan that he's laid out for us. Because of our sin, uh, there does have to be payment. Um, we're told that the wages of sin are death. Um, sin is only covered through death. So, God made a way. Uh, back in the times of the Old Testament, if you're doing the 90-day challenge at, Hears- at Hillside, you've been reading through uh, Leviticus, and you've been breaking down all these different things uh, that, that, that happened in the sacrificial system. And we don't have time to talk about the entire sacrificial system tonight. But let us know this, that the sacrificial system was put in place because without blood, there was no remission of sin. And without a blood sacrifice, and was like, whoa, without a blood sacrifice, there was no forgiveness for sin. Blood had to be shed. There had to be death to be the payment for the sin so that people could have forgiveness. During the times of, of, of the Passover in Jerusalem during the first century, the time when Jesus was there during his Passion Week, he's there during Passover. Uh, this is one of the biggest times where there's sacrifices being made. You have over 2 million people in the city of Jerusalem. It's swelling. Each one of those, there's one sheep for every 10 people, and they're all being slaughtered there in the temple. And Josephus, the historian, tells us that there was so much bloodshed that as it would flow out of the temple into the valley beneath, sometimes the blood would be flowing knee deep. That's how many animals were being sacrificed for the covering of the sin. That's crazy. But without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. Anyone ever heard of the word atonement before? Okay, we're going to break down the word atonement real quick in the most simple, untheological way. The nice thing is we have a whiteboard, so we're going to write it out. Check this out. Here's the word atonement. See that there? Atonement? Here is the easiest way to break down and understand what the word atonement is all about. So remember we just said a few seconds ago that we have man, or we have man, we have God, and because of the depravity of man there's this chasm between that no one can cross. We are completely separated from God. Well, here's the easiest way to understand what atonement is. You take off this word. That's for people with smelly breath. Men. Okay. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Okay, so there's two words here. See the two words? At one. Atonement is us being made at one with God. No, no longer is there a chasm that splits us, but there is something that now brings us to where we, a sinful, a dirty, a filthy people, can be in right relationship with a holy God. You see... Holy God cannot occupy the same space as sin. Cannot occupy the same space as sinful people. But because of a blood covering, there is atonement, and the atoning work of the blood causes forgiveness, and so then people can be at one with God. So this is how the whole sacrificial system would go. And if you stub your toe and you cursed and you said a bad word, time to go kill another animal because you messed up. And it was a very bloody and long process. And it wasn't sustainable. A man, because we're innately sinful, there's going to be a lot of death. We're told 
that death entered the world through the sin of one man. But just as sin and death entered because of that sin, so with one man there has been made a way for us to be right with God once and for all. You see, you know the story. Jesus paid it all. Jesus, God, became man, dwelt among us, lived a perfect, a sinless life, and in his perfect and sinless life, he, in his death upon the cross, took on the complete wrath of God. Jesus was not depraved because he's, he's God, but he took on the depravity of man, not just the men around him, but all man of all time, future, past, and present. He took them all on himself. He took the depravity of man upon himself. God poured out his wrath upon Jesus, and the shed blood of Jesus was the atoning work for everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. God is just, and he put his just payment on Jesus. And now, through faith in Jesus Christ, we can have atonement, we can be at one with God, so that the price is already paid. Our depravity, yes, but it's covered by Jesus, and the wrath of God now is not for the believer. The wrath of God is for those who are unbelievers and who are sinners. Now, we're all sinners, but we're sinners saved by grace. And because of that grace, we now have the atoning work that comes through Jesus. So, what is this whole thing called? Well, it's our fourth point. God's salvation. So we looked at God's wrath. What is it? Why is it? We looked at man's depravity. What is it? Why is it? We looked at God's wrath plus man's depravity. There's a price that needs to be paid. And now, that whole price being paid, the story here, is God's salvation. So what is God's salvation, and why is God's salvation? If you still have your fingers over there in Ephesians chapter 2, I want to read a verse from Ephesians chapter 2. This is what it says. This is right after that portion of Scripture that we read, the first three verses that talks about us being chosen of wrath and fulfilling our lustful and fleshly desires. Verse 4 says this, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love which, with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up together and made to sit together in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, but it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast for we are his workmanship in christ jesus here's the reality god's salvation is defined in jesus's death on the cross and he now has made us alive who were once dead in our trespasses he has made us alive together with him it goes on to say this in john chapter 3 familiar verse verse 16 that god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not die, would not have death, would not have the payment, the wages of their sin, the penalty of their sin, but that they would have everlasting life. God has made a way through Jesus for us to be atoned and at one with him. Romans chapter 5 goes on to talk even more about this. And this is what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 9. It says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath 
through him. The wrath of God is bypassed through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 9 makes this so clear to us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. You see, there's the atonement, there's the sacrificial system, and because of that, the wrath of God is no longer on us because Christ has justified us. Remember, we just looked uh, uh, last week that the just shall live by faith. We who have been justified, we now live by faith. And that justification that has taken place in our lives springboards us into sanctification. And we're going to talk about that in just a few moments when we look at the, the, the last point. But what is God's salvation? It is the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross that brings us eternal life, freedom from our sin. Why is it? Why would God save us, save man who openly rejected him? Why would God save? Well, the answer is very, we say easily summed up. I don't think it's easy. I don't understand it. Mm -hmm. can't understand it. But God loves us. Mm -hmm. That's the part I don't understand because because of our sin, there's no way. We should be worthy of love or any of that, but God, who is rich in mercy with the love with which he has loved us, has made us alive. For God so loved the world. Romans 5, verse 8, God demonstrated his own love towards us. Why is there the salvation of God? Because God is love. First John breaks that down for us. God is love, and because God loves us, God has saved us. Is the purpose, I've heard many people say this, why did God create humanity if he knew all this was going to happen? Was God just lonely? Did he need to create friends? And if all he needed to do was create friends, why did he let those friends betray him? And then, oh man, he must be a really kind of jealous God because he wanted friends so bad, but then they all left him, so... Then he loved them and saved them so they could come back. Did God create us and did God save us because he was lonely and he needed friends? No. God created man and loved man because he is, the Bible tells us, he is a jealous God and he is worthy of praise. God created mankind to glorify him. And because God has created man to glorify him... He has demonstrated his love towards man so that man could glorify God through his love into the people who have not experienced the love of God, who have not experienced the justification of God. We can now glorify God through his salvation in our lives. We are now that reflection of Christ to a world that does not have Christ. Does that make sense? And it is because God has loved humanity so much that he continues to present a way of escape. He presents a better way, a way that detours from the path that leads to destruction. He says, hey, turn off that road. Literally, not even turn off that road. Make a complete 180 and start coming back towards me. And when we do that, we experience the salvation that comes from Christ. And just as we had over here, we had God's wrath, and it was directly related to man's depravity. Now over here, we have God's salvation which is directly related to man's redemption. That's the fifth point tonight. Man's redemption. What is man's redemption? 
And why is man redeemed? Well, why is man redeemed is twofold. And we answered it just a second ago. Man is redeemed because God loves us. Now, in that redemption, there's some living that's going to take place. And we're going to talk about that in just a sec. But before I get ahead and talk about the why, we've got to talk about the what. What is man's redemption? Galatians breaks it down pretty well for us. But so does Ephesians. And how many of you guys are still in Ephesians chapter 2? Anyone still there? Ephesians chapter 2 goes on to say this in verse 6. It says this, And he has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places. My notes say 16. I just read 6. Let me read 16. This is what it says in 16. Hey, it happens to the best of us. I'm definitely not the best. No, it actually says 6. That was the one I meant to read. I was like... Um, but he, he has raised us up. He has made us new. He, he has brought us and he sits us with Christ Jesus. We experience all the spiritual blessing that comes in Christ Jesus. What is the redemption of man? Is it, It's being raised anew with Christ. This is what it says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. One of my favorite verses. If you don't have an underline in your Bible, underline it, highlight it, put a little star next to it, make a note by the side of it, write it in your notes. But Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. What is the redemption of man? Redemption of man, man's redemption, is death to self. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. We are crucified with Christ. Paul says elsewhere that he picks up his cross daily to follow Christ. What does that mean? It means it's a constant, everyday thing of dying to ourselves so that we live for the Lord. Because God has given us his salvation, which is a direct juxtaposition to God's wrath, one's not greater or worse than the other. They're just completely diametrically different. God's wrath is the destruction. God's salvation is the eternal hope and glory that we have. And because we have God's salvation, man's depravity is now no longer how we're defined. Because of God's salvation, it is the redemption that now defines us. And that definingness, if you can have definingness, of redemption is what spurs us on to be crucified with Christ, pick up our cross daily. And live each life, not we that live, but Christ that lives through us. So if the salvation work of God is justification, Jesus sees us just as if we've never sinned at salvation, that justification is what saves us from the depravity. But the next thing, sanctification, is what keeps us from the depraved nature that we have what is sanctification well if justification is a one-time thing that happens at salvation sanctification is the lifelong process of becoming sanctified for everyone who studied english before i just defined a word with the word you can't say sanctification is the process of becoming sanctified but i can because this is an english class this is theology 
Sanctification is the process of becoming righteous. It's the process of becoming holy. Jesus says, be holy for I am holy. Sanctification is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. Now, for any theology buff in the room, there's justification, sanctification, then there's a third one, which is glorification. But no one's going to hit the glorification stage in this life. Glorification is what happens when we get to heaven, when we experience our spiritual bodies. And that's going to be super sweet, where we are going to be like God. Not a God or not like a God, but we will be like God. We will have a spirit body. Like when Jesus, after the resurrection, he walked through walls and he did all those super cool things. He flew up into heaven like Superman. You know, like those are going to be our spirit bodies. That's glorification. We're not going to talk about that. Tonight, we're talking about sanctification, the lifelong process of becoming holy, the lifelong process of becoming righteous, the lifelong process of becoming like Christ. It is because of the salvation that saves us and justifies us from the depravity, which saves us from the wrath of God, which now the redemption side of thing and the sanctification is what keeps us from living in the process of being a children or, or, or a child of wrath, a child of depravity. It is sanctification that does this so what is sanctification it's live like christ little bonus point most of you already all know this when you profess to be a christian you're professing to be a little christ we're told in the book of acts that they were first called christians in antioch because that's how they they modeled the people the greeks there in antioch were like oh my goodness there's a bunch of little Jesus clones running around here. They're, they're Christians. They're little Christs. Look at them. They're just all over the place. When you say, I'm a Christian, you are saying, I am a little Christ. That word, that title, Christian, innately includes the sanctification process. When you say you're a Christian, you're saying you are a little Christ. You are like Christ in the way you do things. So it should match what you're saying. Being a Christian... Having Christian living, it should be reflected in the sanctification process that is happening in our life. It is an ongoing process where we are living like Christ. What is one of the things that makes us live like Christ? Well, loving, being merciful, being gracious, being joyful, all those things. But here's one for you, and I think this is one of the most important. Christ came to earth on a mission. And he said he came to do the will of the Father. If we are little Christs, if we are in a process of becoming more and more like Christ, should we not also seek to fulfill the will of God in our life? I believe wholeheartedly that that is paramount to sanctification, to the process of the life of the Christian, is to see the will of Christ, the will of God, fulfilled. What did Jesus say the will of the Father was? What did Jesus? What was Jesus' mission statement? Anyone know what Jesus' mission statement was? He said, "I have come to do the will of the Father." What was that will? I have come to seek and to save the lost. As followers of Christ, we come to seek and save the lost. So, just as 
There was the depravity of man. This is how we once lived. The wrath of God was now going to be poured out on us. We see the juxtaposition. Now we're no longer depraved. Now we're redeemed. We are experiencing the salvation of God. The salvation of God was his will for us. And now that we are experiencing his will, we are to bring his will over here to where we once were. So that because of his salvation and his redemption, we can see depravity begin to be lessened so the wrath of God is duly what it was made for. Does that make sense? You guys, you guys track what I'm saying? Yes, there are sinners. Yes, there are people who have not experienced the love of Christ. And yes, they are experiencing the wrath of God. But he has sent each and every single one of us on a mission to seek and save the lost. That's not sit down and wait for the lost to come to you. That's to seek and to bring the gospel with us wherever we go. And that pushes us right back to where we begin. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. What is the gospel of Christ? It's the good news. We no longer are depraved. We are redeemed. We no longer experience the wrath of God. We get the juxtaposition of it. We get the salvation of God. That's the good news that we are to not be ashamed of. And when we're not ashamed of it, when we boldly proclaim it, it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel, the spoken good news of Jesus Christ, is the power to change eternal life. That's impressive. And that power exists in each and every single one of us. Because, because of God's salvation, now we are redeemed, that redemption is God's salvation at work in our lives, that sanctification, that is the power that leads to salvation. The sanctification process that's taking place in our life is enticing and compelling to someone who's experienced and experiencing depravity. Overcoming of sin, not giving in when the body tells us to give in, not giving in because we have the willpower because of Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit in us, mm -hmm. that's enticing to someone who always gives in. Yeah. We have the power of salvation inside us, and we are to not be ashamed of it. For it is the righteousness of God that is revealed from faith to faith, for it is written, the just shall live by faith. Because we have been justified, because we are being sanctified, we live by faith. It is no longer we that live, but Christ that lives in us. We are crucified with Christ. And from that, we go forth and we proclaim the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. And we do it unashamedly. So, we have these two sides. Man's depravity and God's wrath. God's salvation and man's redemption. We've tasted the salvation, the redemption side of things. And because we've tasted and experienced that, we should be unashamed of that. It's not a shameful thing to be saved from destruction. Am I right? So since it's not shameful, it should be something that we want to bring with us everywhere we go. And that's why Jesus said, and I end a good majority of sermons with this, that's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 27, 8, he said, hey, go 
into all the world to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe the things which I have commanded, and lo, I am with you always unto the end of the age. Jesus said, hey, you've got it. Don't be ashamed. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. He, he, he's made it very clear. You've experienced redemption and salvation. Now go be unashamed about it and take it to people who are experiencing wrath due to their depravity. Paul's clear about it. Clear to the point. We've got a mission. We've got a will to see fulfilled. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, God, we thank you that it is true uh, and that you speak to us through it. God, we just pray that tonight uh, you'll burn a fire in our hearts. God, to be excited about you, to be excited about your word. Um, God, and as we as we looked, God, we thank you uh, that you have provided a way for us to be uh, at one with you. We no longer have to be children of wrath, stuck in our depravity, experiencing the wrath of God. But now, through the salvation of you, uh, God, we can we, we, we can live a redeemed life in this process of sanctification. God, I pray that you'd strengthen each and every single one of us in that. God, and I pray that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, but that we would proclaim the gospel. That at the end of the day, the juxtaposition would be ashamed versus proclaimed. God, may we be people who proclaim the gospel, not be ashamed of the gospel. So God, we thank you and we praise you. In your son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. 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 God is